All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Mark chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at verses 35 through 43 this morning as I continue to look at revelation on a seemingly hopeless and desperate day. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, we are thanking you, Lord, for your tremendous love and grace to us. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to have the word of God in our hands, to be able to open it up and read it. I praise you, Lord, for, um, for all that you have given to us. And now, Lord, show us the things that are contained therein about who you are and how you're revealing yourself. And Lord, how that really affects us today in our life as we walk with you uh, every day. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Mark chapter 5, we're looking at verses 35 through 43. Now, up until this point, as I mentioned, the revelation has been about Jesus Christ uh, on him unveiling himself to people uh, as has been very uh, significant and he's been, in a sense, leaking out a little by little who he is. And we saw Jesus as the powerful God who brought about calm out of chaos and stilling the storm where the winds and the waves obeyed his voice. Uh, that particular event was designed specifically to increase the disciples' faith and to show himself as the sovereign and all-powerful Lord. Then on that dark and demonic seashore, Jesus brought sanity to insanity by commanding the legion of demons to leave the man they possessed. And after they did leave, there that untamed, wild, ferocious, demon-possessed man was now tame and calm, and clothed, and rational, and want to go follow Jesus, and stay with Jesus, and Jesus told him, no, stay here, and be a witness. That demoniac experienced the redemptive touch of Christ. Next, Jesus' mercy went out to a woman, we saw last week, who had an incurable menstrual hemorrhage for 12 years. Her plan was to privately touch the fringe of Jesus' garment, she did so, and to her surprise, was immediately healed, and she felt it in her body. And though she wanted to keep it, that event very private, and touch Jesus, be healed, and get out of there, Jesus wanted that event to be made public. And so when the eyes of Jesus rested on her, she did something normal actually when confronted with holiness it says in verse number 33 of chapter 5 she fell down before him and then what happened is that she confessed in verse 33 and told Jesus the whole truth she bore her whole heart to Jesus so here her experience actually turned into a blessing and in spite of her shame in spite of really of her, her shame and fear. And so now, today, we go and we see the, the assemblage 
event that happens. And what I mean by that, remember, this is packaged uh, in a very specific way in Scripture. These two narratives are, are like a sandwich. I mentioned there's a top piece of bread, there's a bottom piece of bread, and then in the middle there's, there's peanut butter and jelly. Well, last week we looked at the peanut butter and jelly because it has an A, B, A kind of construction or structure to it in Scripture. And so now we look at, go back to the top piece of bread and then look at the bottom piece of bread and see how these all fit together. Now there are several things that need to be mentioned again concerning these both stories. Both stories are females healed by the touch of Jesus. Both females are called daughters by Jesus. Both the women's disease and the little girl's age are 12 years. Both stories are met with rebuke. Both stories bring Jesus into contact with the unclean. In one case, the minstrel hemorrhage of the woman we looked at in the Old Testament, and then also the corpse of the child. Uncleanness is transferred to Jesus. Jesus bestows the cleansing wholeness of God upon both of them. So both find hope when all human help is exhausted. And so now we come to, we go back to the top piece of bread and we look at the public official. Now let's go back up to verse number 22. The public official with the dying daughter. And um, if you notice, first in verse number 22, it says one of the synagogue officials named Jairus. Now uh, there's about three pronunciations of this name. Probably the correct one is Jairus instead of Jairus. Uh, and then there was another pronunciation too. So uh, this synagogue official had a certain status to him. It says he came up and seeing him, that's Jesus, he fell at his feet. Now this person was definitely privileged because he was one of the elders who managed the services and the other affairs of the synagogue. He was a prominent layman. He wasn't a priest. And he came humbly to Jesus, weighed down with something that was going on in his life and came to Jesus with this burden. And what was his petition in verse number 22? It says he was pleading for his only child, a daughter. She was 12 years old, and she was at the end of hospice care, where it says in verse 23, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. So Jairus has faith that she can be saved through the intervention of Jesus. And what's Jesus' response in verse number 24? And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him, pressing in on him. So Jesus, what does he do? He accedes to the petition of Jairus, and he rushes off to his home where his daughter lay sick at the point of death. Jesus is then interrupted by the woman with the incurable disease. And as the crowd is very large, everyone is seems to be pressing on him as he moves to go to the house of the sick child. 
a woman stops him. And Jesus shows mercy to the woman, as I just already mentioned, that this woman displayed faith in Jesus and now becomes the strength and example for Jairus, the synagogue official, to be able to, to recover his faith in Jesus after hearing the devastating news. Of course, Jairus... Jairus and the woman have only one thing in common, actually. Both are victims of desperate circumstances who have no hope apart from Jesus. That's what they have in common. However, Jairus is armed with the visible example of a woman, a woman's genuine faith, who heal, who, of course, who was healed by the Lord Jesus Christ when she had no human help, uh, and everybody who tried to help her, physicians, miserably failed her. And so she went to Jesus, and Jesus, of course, healed her by just touching. She just touched him, and she was immediately healed. And so what was the devastating news? Now Jairus' daughter is dead. And so that's where we pick it up. So it's Jairus coming to Jesus being interrupted by the woman's problem. Jesus now heals her, and that Jairus is looking on. He's probably a little bit impatient, wanting to get to his house, not knowing the fate of his daughter. And so he has this whole scenario of this woman believing in Jesus and how Jesus brought it all to the surface and made it all public. And he did it really for his sake. So he... His strength, his faith could be strengthened by this devastating news. So now we have this public official with a dead daughter. So he comes face to face with the ultimate reality. Look at it says in verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? So this is what's happening here. In other words, whatever one of the relatives or families or friends that came up from the synagogue official's house, they concluded, since the child is dead, not even Jesus could do something about it. It's was just too far reaching to believe that Jesus could restore the little girl if she had already passed away. See, the point of the reality of death has come in, and, and death is a reality. It is the ultimate reality. Death is still very much an enemy in this fallen world in which we live. It causes more confusion turmoil, grief than anything else. In fact, it produces more doubt in the ability and existence of God than almost anything else. Even those who believe that there is a God may think of God as cosmic dust or atmospheric energy or some kind of higher power or influence. They do not think of God as imminent and near and personally involved with the affairs of people. 
They do not see him as dynamically alive and one who cares and gives and makes and keeps promises. These people at the end of the day actually deny the existence of a good and merciful God because they forfeit trusting in self-made worthless idols which do nothing for them except shut them out forever from the kingdom of God. If one just takes a quick search of the Old Testament, we'll find ample amount of verses that describe God. For example, in Psalm, he is good. In Deuteronomy, he is faithful. In another passage in Psalm, he is compassionate and gracious. In Joel, he's abounding in love. And in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see in chapter 12, he's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. However, when human despair comes in contact with Jesus Christ, well, then divine possibility has the upper hand. The true God makes possible all things that are impossible, even when it comes to death. So, in other words, that this man, Jairus, must have faith in the impossible. He must have faith in something that really rarely was ever known. Only in the Old Testament can you see some examples of someone being brought back to life. So we must never forget that Jesus Christ is the great disruptor and destroyer of death. He has defeated Satan and death on the cross. In fact, if you would like to turn there, in Hebrews, keep your hand right here, but Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 and 15, a very specific passage of Scripture addresses this, where it says in Hebrews chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So again, This is the ultimate reality. In fact, the book of Job describes death in this way. Bildad, one of Job's supposed friends, speaks to Job about God's punishment of the wicked, kind of referring to Job as being wicked. And he says, listen, death is described as like this. It's the king of terrors. It is also considered to wipe the memory of the person off the face of this earth. In fact, at Job, it says, it chases the person from the inhabited world, which it really does. It brings person and drives them from light into darkness. And then in Job, it tells us that such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is a place of him who does not know God. Where death is, is where God is not known. So see, the thought and the reality of death, 
definitely brings all kinds of fears to people. Even today, all of us in some way have been haunted by the, f- the fact of death. One fear is the fear of the unknown. We live in a world which we are familiar Every day is filled with sights and sounds that give a sense of belonging. We are surrounded by our possessions. We are surrounded by our families and friends. Our minds are filled with our hopes and our plans, our ambitions and our dreams. Death removes all these and launches all of them into the unknown. Where everything is dark And fearful emptiness seems to consume the room. Countless people are fearful of the prospect of death. There's also the fear of meeting God. Many people give little thought to God. Perhaps when attending a funeral, they may think of God. I try to remind people that funerals are really not for the person who died, but for the living. To remind them that This is where they're going. So how are you living your life? Where do you stand before God? So from time to time, people do think about death, this nagging, disturbing instinct that someday they will stand before their maker. So there's a fear there. There's also the fear of final judgment that's connected with that. It's a time when one comes face to face with God, like like Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, verse 27, in so much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this judgment, it will be a moment when their lives will come under the searching review of one who is utterly righteous and holy, and one who has said of his future kingdom of heaven, In Revelation, and nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So then there is an insanity surrounding the reality of death. And the only sane approach the only sane approach to take in dealing with death is to bring it to the only one who has overcome it. That's the only thing we could do. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, at the end of Ecclesiastes, he reminds his readers about God. And he says this in Ecclesiastes twelve six: remember him, before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed and the pillar by the well is shattered. He's describing the breakdown of the body. You know, the limbs go, you know, the pains come in, the, the mind goes, everything goes when we're getting older. Everything's going south. But he says this, remember in your youth, God, before you get to the place where, where everything comes apart. And then he says this, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, that's your body, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. See, that should be on our minds all the time. So Jesus deals with this situation with this man and his daughter in a completely different way than the private woman 
with the incurable condition that became curable after touching Jesus. See, Jesus takes this public man and his serious situation and makes it a private event. He switches it for specific reasons he does, maybe one particular reason. But before we look, see that, there are six actions that Jesus takes in regard to Jairus's painful, heart-wrenching situation. And it shows the compassion and the authority of Jesus all wrapped into one, and then also the power of Jesus in his person. And so let's look at each one of them. And here's the first one. They're evident in Scripture that the first action Jesus takes is he pays no attention to the messengers in verse 36 of chapter 5 of Mark. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken. All right, what was being spoken? Of course, in the verse before that, in verse number 35, that the message came that his daughter was dead. So why trouble the teacher anymore? So see, now the the Greek word for... um, Overhearing also can be translated probably more rightly to ignore or to refuse to listen. So I think this is what's going on. See, Jesus ignored the word they spoke about the dead child and he, the teacher, not being needed. And they're only looking at Jesus as a teacher. They're not going too much further than that. So that's the first action he, he takes. He ignores the message. The second action he takes is that Jesus addressed the distressed father with a negative and a positive admonition. And we see that Jesus is in complete control of the situation. The negative admonition is found in verse number 36, and it says, And he said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid. Now again, I just mentioned the fear that goes with death. And especially the fear, not only in this case of his own death, but the death of his 12-year-old daughter. That's a heart-wrenching thing. Everything's going on in your mind. You're just pulled from all kinds of direction. And he's specifically addressing him, calming him down, and saying to him, listen, do not be afraid. He admonishes, actually, he admonishes him quite literally to stop an action in progress. What was the action in progress? Fear, hopelessness helplessness, unable to do anything to save her with this bad news. See, that's where death usually takes a person and keeps a person. It keeps them in the fear realm and in the hopeless realm. So Jairus is is actually driven to trust Jesus in his helplessness. You know what? You may think that's the worst place to be, That's the best place to be. The best place to be is when you are utterly helpless. And of course, where are we utterly helpless the most? In saving ourselves, right? We can't save ourselves from the condemnation of sin and the wrath of God. We can do nothing to save ourselves. And so when we come to the sense of being helpless, then what are we to do? Look at the second admonition he gives as he dresses this distressed father well let me just mention one thing uh, before I go there it would be very cruel to say to someone don't be afraid of death 
if you could do nothing about it. Right? Because it would just be, it wouldn't be true. You would be lying to the person to somehow comfort them. What does Jesus tell him in the second admonition? The positive one in verse number 36. He says, he said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Now, Jesus encourages him to keep his faith alive, to believe in God who makes things impossible possible. And how could he do that? Well, he has a fresh example in his mind about the woman. He can gain strength from how the woman believed in Jesus, and now that is fresh in his mind, and that's exactly what is going on, and that's why this is a sandwich, because this inside story helps him to know what it means to have faith, and then what faith produces once you have it in Jesus. It produces results. There's a third action that takes place in verse 37 and verse 40, This is the action. Jesus rids himself of the crowd. Now remember, I've been looking at the outside crowd and the inside crowd in the Gospel of Mark, right? The outside crowd is really the crowd around Jesus. But just because people are following Jesus and pressing on him, and just because they're in the crowd, don't mean that they're in the inside crowd. And so what Jesus does is he actually gets rid of the outsiders and chooses the insiders whom will accompany him inside the home of Jairus. Look at verse number 37. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, in verse 37 there. See, Jesus only allows the inner circle to come in the house with Jesus, the three of the 12 apostles to witness this event. And I just want you to note that this could also be that he's following an Old Testament passage of Scripture whereby two or three witnesses were required by law to establish any fact that might be otherwise questioned. All right, so there is the witnesses. So Jesus brings three of them. Two are required, but he brings three of them. And of course, remember, Peter, James, and John are going to be significant inner circle. Um, That is going to be very important because where does Mark get his material from to write the gospel? He gets it from Peter. So Peter has to be the eyewitness. Mark wasn't there, right? Peter's the eyewitness. So Peter relates to Mark what he's to write later on because Mark was, in a sense, under a, a disciple of, of his. And so that's what's going on here. And, of course, they began laughing at him in verse 40. But notice what it says, But verse 40. But putting them all out, he took along the, children, the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. So who was in the room? Well, Peter, James, and John were in the room. The mother and father were in the room. That's five. Jesus was in the room, and, of course, the dead little girl was in the room. All right, so that's it. The door was shut. The crowd was shut out to this event. That's very significant. It's significant 
even in relation to the parables where Jesus is speaking in parables to shut out those who are outside and to inform those who are inside, to those who sit at his feet and want to listen to his word and want to follow him as their Lord and Savior. That's what he is doing here. And so in this event, he doesn't allow the crowd to be part of it. All right, now let's go a little bit further into that. There's a fourth action Jesus takes in verse number 38. Jesus, what he does is he cleanses out the crowd of professional mourners. Now, what do I, what do I mean by that? Well, Jews uh, had professional mourners come when someone died. Because don't forget, depending on what time you died, you either are buried at sunset of that, of that day, or you're buried very early the next morning. All right, so there's very little time at all whatsoever. Look at verse number 38. It says, They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion, and people loudly weeping and wailing. In verse 39, And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? This child has not died, but is asleep. Hmm. See, uh, Mark, uh, Matthew mentions that there's also flute players there. Uh, These were professional mourners. This type of artificial mourning started way back in the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. But if you, if you, he said back when in Jeremiah, listen, call for the women who are mourning and then send for the wailing women that they may come, let them make haste and take up a wailing for us that our eyes may shed tears and our eyelids flow with water. See, it was real in Jeremiah's time, and in a sense it's real here, but these people who came in who were still on the outside, Jesus did not let them in in either. He actually got rid of this group too, and they left. But something significant comes up in this group of believers, I mean, this group of unbelievers, all right, and just professional mourners, look what it says in our passage in verse number 39 and 40. It says, the child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. That's a significant uh, addition in this passage of scripture. Their derisive laughing only reinforces what was already true, that professional mourners recognize death when they see it. All right? But if you notice what Jesus says, that she has not died, but is asleep. Now, how, how do we to take this when we read this in Scripture? Well, when Jesus is around, death is like sleeping because sleeping was often used as a euphemism for death. In fact, Jesus at other times spoke of death as sleeping. In other places it spoke, it speaks of death as sleeping. And one great example is John chapter 11. I'd like you to turn there. All right, look at John chapter 11, verse 11 through 15, just to give you a sense on how Jesus often used this word sleeping to mean actual death. In John chapter 11, look at verse number 11. It said, it says here, this 
he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Verse number 12, the disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. And so in verse number 14, Jesus sets the record straight. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. So see, this is another way and place in which Jesus used sleeping to refer to death. And there's other places in Scripture that the same thing is going on. So, but it becomes clear that the little girl was dead because the Gospel of Luke, recording this same event, leaves no shadow of a doubt that the girl was dead when it records in Luke chapter 8, in verse 40, 54 and 55, he, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise, and her spirit returned, and she got up immediately and gave orders for something to be given her to eat. In other words, that this child was really dead. Uh, it was recognized that she was dead. There's no way that... Uh, someone could be alive if their spirit, their soul is not in them, who is their real person. So in Luke, it records that her spirit returned to her. And so remember, death is not termination. Death is separation. Death brings about a temporary separation of body and soul. Right Now, in Scripture, it mentions three kinds of death. There's physical death, which we're talking about here. There's spiritual death, where everyone born into the world is spiritually dead until they come to Christ, and Christ makes them spiritually alive to believe in him, to repent, and by faith follow him. And then there is eternal death. That is the death someone experiences after they die from this world physically, and they are eternally separated body and soul from a good and merciful and kind and loving God. See, so someday this separation will end and body and soul will be reunited so that all who have died will be whole human beings again. See, see, while people say be dead and buried, they are, that person is never dead and gone. Instead, there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. That is in Scripture. And from then on, everyone concerned will have resurrected bodies. The unjust will have resurrected bodies, and the just will have resurrected bodies. Identifiable by those uh, they had here on the earth, yet not identical to them, but designated to fit their new eternal destination, whether it will be in God's kingdom 
forever and ever or whether it will be in a place called the lake of fire where someone is separated from God for all eternity but in their resurrected bodies, meaning they can never die again. So eternal punishment is that, eternal. It will never end according to Scripture. So, see, the only solution to death is Christ. He's the only solution. In fact, the fifth action back in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, is that very thing, that Jesus touched and spoke to the little girl. In verse number 41, notice what he says to her. Mark five forty-one. taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, Talitha kum, which means, or translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Now, that's Aramaic. Uh, Jesus speaks in a completely different language. I think just to remind and embed upon the minds of his uh, disciples, especially Peter, James, and John, of what's going on there. They will never forget this particular event, this very private event that was for their eyes and their seeing Uh, and their ears on that particular day. See, Jesus in Aramaic says quite literally, little lady arise, and by the grasp of his hand and a word from his mouth, he restores life and health and full strength to her lifeless body. And it says in verse 42, immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. See, Jesus, by his omnipotent power, will change death into life by his word. By his word. His word is effective over death. Dead stood stood powerless before the word of God. Only God can unseparate the soul from the body. Jesus, as God, already demonstrated that he was able to heal diseases cast out legions of demons, have authority over creation. And on this occasion, he actually raised the dead. It is this Jesus, fully God, fully man, who is our means of escape from the horrors of hell and death. And someday, when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness... Then will come to pass the scripture that says in the book of Revelation, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. And then it says the first things have passed away. See, this is what we are looking forward to in this passage of Scripture. Because what the woman experienced and what Jairus experience with his daughter being brought to life is the same thing we are going to experience because we know Christ. See, the reaction of this, the insider group in verse number 42 should be our reaction. 
It's this insider group. They were overwhelmed greatly with amazement, where it says, and immediately they, they were completely astonished. Would you not be completely astonished when you never expected to see a resurrection? You never expected that. Now God, now Jesus has authority over death. Nobody could do that. No one's ever done that. Only God has done that in the Old Testament. So that means that Jesus must be God. He has an authority that nobody else has. Death obeys him. He brings someone who died back to life. He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. In fact, we know that even those who fall asleep sleep in Jesus, the Bible tells us in Thessalonians, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. That when Jesus rose again, Jesus rose victorious over death. It was the resurrection of Jesus that demonstrated that death really was conquered, that God will bring them with Jesus. This Jesus, who by his death and rising fashioned our eternal salvation. And my friends, Christians sleep only and do not go through the terrors of death. And why? Because of Jesus. See, souls of believers enter into an enjoyment and a perfect honor and happiness in Christ. Their death is unstinged. The sting of death has been removed. And why? By the virtue of Christ's blood applied to all who believe in him. If they have died in Christ, they do not have to be afraid. If you die in Christ, you do not have to be afraid. Because the same thing that happened here will happen to us. See, your loved ones who fell asleep in Christ will not miss their share in the coming of Jesus Christ. However, I just want to make note about this point concerning sleep again and or fell asleep metaphor of dying physically as I already said. See, Paul in Thessalonians did not say that the soul went to sleep at death. He made it clear that the soul went to be with the Lord. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. In other words, he cannot bring them when he returns unless they are with him. It is not the soul that sleeps. It is the body that sleeps. The soul, the spirit goes to be with the Lord if that person has trusted Jesus Christ. As 1 Corinthians 5 tells us, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. But there's a sixth thing and a last thing that comes up in our passage in verse number 43. This is the sixth action of Jesus. Jesus gave strict orders to keep this event private. Look what it says in verse 43. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. He 
He's taking care of two things there. Let the crowd think and say what they want. This event will stay, stay private for now. It was only for the eyes of the disciples and the mother and father. Even though the parents were ready to run outside and make whatever happened in their home very public, Jesus wanted all them to keep the event private, most likely to keep down excessive, the excessive popular acclaim that goes with such an event like this. I mean, come on, all the things that, he- that led up to this, you can, you can heal somebody, you can, you can tell the wind and the waves to stop, you can do this, you can do that, but to raise the dead, that is a spectacular event. Matter of fact, if that happened and someone did that, there would be all the roads from, to that event will be blocked off because everybody would want to go and meet this person. That's what would happen. But there's something else going on here. Jesus did not want the crowd to know. They didn't, he didn't want their eyes to behold what took place there. He didn't want the false mourners to revel in this event. And he did not want the mockers to revel in this event. He wanted to keep this event very private. So in all these events where Jesus has power over nature in calming the storm, where Jesus has power over the demonic realm, where Jesus has power over disease and death, itself shows us that he has brought the kingdom of God near to us. This is what's going to happen when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. We can never forget this Jesus is the Lord God in whom we place our trust for eternal salvation and for all things, for all time. We can trust him in all our circumstances. We can trust him for our present and our future. We can trust him in all things. Now that brings to mind certain considerations concerning this passage. The first one is death. Here is a preview of, of what will take place on the cross. The death of Christ becomes our hope and way out. He would become unclean for us, for our sake. He would bear our guilt and our judgment against our sin. And he would pay for it before God in full so that there could be nothing against us, nothing nothing holding us back from the presence of God. See, Jesus takes care of death in every realm, physical, spiritual, and eternal. He takes care of all of it for us. And so that is the encouragement for us to not be caught in fear, but to believe and to live your life with a boldness in your belief. But it's also a preview of the resurrection, a preview of what Jesus will do at the end of time when he will take us by the hand and say, arise, when he will give us new bodies that we will live in his presence for all eternity. See, that is a promise that is given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is their consideration of the kingdom. It's a preview of the fullness of the kingdom of God, the second coming of Christ, the restoration of all things where the word of God tells us in in Acts, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, 
whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. See, Christ will come back to reconstitute the universe. When the curse of sin came, it brought with it disease and thorns and briars, wars and murders and rebellion and all kinds of social disorders. It brought earthquakes. It brought hurricanes. It brought everything that was wearing the whole creation down. When God sends his Christ, his son, into the world again, when he sends him back here, he will put it right again. Messiah was to lead the whole universe from bondage to paradise. That's what his job was. In fact, the passage of Scripture in Hebrews where it says, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this the judgment, well, the, that's not the whole passage. The rest of the passage says this, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. So here is the response of believers. While the plan of God is working out, and God has left us here to do the unfinished work of of evangelizing the rest of the world, what are we to do? We are to wait for him eagerly. Eagerness is an example of what real faith is. I'm eager about serving Christ. I'm eager about the truth. I'm eager about my present. I'm eager about my future. I'm eager about the plan of a God. I'm awaiting being in Christ's presence. That's what it is. And that's what Scripture does, and that's what the Spirit of God helps us do. So if God is speaking to you today, ask him to give you faith if you have none. Jesus will heal your uncleanness because of your sin. He will give you what no one else can give you. Forgiveness of sin could be yours if it's not already. Or it says in the word of God, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That you could be free from any fear of condemnation on the day of judgment, knowing that Jesus paid the full penalty that you deserved. Peace with God could be yours. Scripture assures us we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And by nature, we have a built-in hostility towards God and are exposed to his righteous anger every day. But if you put your trust in Christ, the war will be over. You will have an inner peace and a transcendence of all understanding that will remain even when we face life's greatest storms. There's a peace that God that no, gives us that no one could give. Also, eternal life could be yours. While sin brings physical And spiritual death, the Bible says in Romans, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, that means infinitely more than living forever. 
It means doing so in a right relationship with God. It means enjoying the presence of God every day. It means joyfully worshiping him every day and then someday face to face. It means rejoicing in his beauty and reveling in, his, in the spiritual blessing that he will shower upon those who are his children. And believe me, if you are an insider, all the promises of God are yours. If you are an insider, all the things in this scripture are yours. If you are an insider, someday the kingdom of God, you will be in it, you will be with Christ, and it will be yours. Yes, these narratives are a preview of what we have and will experience when we put our faith in Christ. Freedom from sins, pollution and condemnation, transfer from death to life, and a hope of an astounding present and future because of Jesus Jesus Christ. So he becomes the center. He becomes the one who does the impossible. He becomes the one who raises the dead and gives life to those who are dead spiritually. That's who he is. And that's how we ought to understand him and live every day of our lives. So our faith grows deeper and wider every single day. And that the Lord constantly removes from us the fear that binds us and enslaves us. That's what he does. And I pray this morning that the Lord would do in your life the things that need to be done for you to live a free and bold Christian walk and life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the word. Again, I I praise you for the things that are contained therein. I thank you, Lord, that you are the one who has authority over death and that In this passage, it's even a preview of what will be and what you have done on the cross. It is a preview of the resurrection that Jesus will do at the end time where he grants to us not only spiritual life, but eternal life and new bodies to live with him forever. And then, Lord, a preview of the fullness of the kingdom of God. When when that comes, Lord... All these things that we know about now, all these things we experience, the crying, people dying, the mourning, the sorrow that goes in this life will all be gone. It will all be in the past. None of it will happen again. And Lord, that is the hope that we have. Enable us to trust you for it and live every day in that light. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.